all systems failure. Launching life pod. Navigating to nearest habitable planet. Life support online. Rations check complete. Entertainment capacity critical. Please select shortlist. Hello and welcome to Remote Outpost Games, our interview show which may bear a passing similarity to a popular tropical island themed music selection show. Our guests are stranded on a remote outpost, far from the Galnet comms channels and with no immediate hope of rescue. We asked them to pick five games they couldn't live without if they were put in this situation. Since we're Lave Radio, every outcast already gets a lifetime subscription to Elite Dangerous and a Game Boy copy of Tetris. Everything else is up to them. Tonight we're joined by Neil Renison, creative director of Tin Man Games, the developer responsible for a huge library of fighting fantasy and original game books, and also the highly acclaimed Warlock of Firetop Mountain game for PC. Hello Neil, and welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good, thank you very much for coming. No worries, I've got coffee in hand, I'm, I'm waking <laughs> up, it's all good. Yes, I should just say, uh, Tin Man Games are based in, I think it's Melbourne, Australia, isn't it? It is, yeah, Melbourne, yeah. So uh, Neil is with us uh, early in the morning for him and very late at night for us. Uh, so apologies to the podcast listeners if there is yawning, <laughs> if there is yawning all round. Um, this is uh, yeah one of those weirdly antisocial recording times. So uh, Tin Man Games, uh, Neil, you, you've kind of, I was looking at the sort of the list of games that, that Tin Man has produced. And to me, like kind of as somebody watching Tin Man Games kind of develop over the years, I was saying to you before we started that I've been sort of, for some reason or another, I've been sort of following Tin Man Games from quite early on. You started off creating your own original choose-your-own-adventure style uh, apps for, for, for mobile phones. The ones I can think of was uh, there was an assassin in Orlando's and the siege of the necromancer was the second one so you you started off creating choose your own adventures which were very much in the kind of style and kind of mechanics of the classic fighting fantasy novels produced by uh, steve jackson and ian livingston and then later on you started actually producing official adaptations of the fighting fantasy novels so how did that come about originally when i first set up Tin Man Games, uh, the iPhone had just come out and we made some games and they hadn't done very well and I lost a bit of money and I was looking, sort of scrambling around trying to think of ways of, of games that I could develop and I kind of went back into my childhood and, and I was like, wow, I remember fighting fantasy books. They would make excellent things that you could read on an iPhone. Um, the iPad hadn't even been released at this point. And so I, through a few channels, I got in touch with Steve Jackson and said, hey, we'd really like to do this, um, at which point he said that, unfortunately, the license had been given to a company in Canada called Big Blue Bubble, and they started producing apps for versions of their games. And I thought, I was really disappointed, but I thought, well, look, I want to do this. I think it's got a lot of possibility. Why don't I do our own series? So Game Book Adventures was born. Um, I found a load of writers on the on the internet who were, who'd been writing interactive fiction for years, I got them together and said, I've got this crazy idea. And I got a bit of funding from local government. And um, yeah, and that's how we started the series. I actually wrote one of the books myself. It took me 18 months. It was The Siege of the Necromancer, which was what we just mentioned. And so, yeah, we did our own thing. It was all set within a, a Dungeons and Dragons world that I designed when I was 15, back in the early 90s. We had all this resource um, to, to build these stories. Um, and then about two or three years later, I was at in London at uh, an event called Dragon Meet, which is a, a, an RPG convention. And I was just there sort of handing out postcards and free things just to try and generate a bit of buzz. And um, yeah, Ian Livingston rocked up next to me, said, hello, Neil. <laughs> I was like, hello. <laughs> and he said, uh, you're, you're the guy that's uh, copying our game book style for apps, aren't you? And I was like, well, I would say copying. I, I'm more inspired by. Uh, and we had a bit of a joke about that. And, and essentially, he was writing the 30th anniversary uh, Final Fantasy book, which was Blood of the Zombies at the time. And um, he said, look, I, I'd like somebody to do an app for this. And he said the license for Big Blue Bubbles running out. And he, he, does, he, he wasn't sure they were going to renew. So there could be possibilities. And that just led on and yeah we ended up sort of taking the license on and uh yeah developing the the games and apps from there 
from that point forward. So moving on to your first choice, uh, you've chosen one which uh, we've, we've, we've had another guest choose before, but that's not a problem. A very popular game. Uh, you have chosen Football Manager. I'm also joined by co-host John Stabler. Hello, John. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Good evening and good morning, Neil. Yeah, I was going to say, you also sound like the second person, not just to choose the game, but to, I don't know, it comes across as like a guilty pleasure. Yeah, it's, I mean, football manager go way back. Lots of exams that I didn't revise for and various other things. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing this game since I first saw it on the Amiga. Um, I had, it was called Championship Manager back then. And I had the very first Championship Manager um, and would play that every year. And then I think Championship Manager then changed to Football Manager. And then I think Championship Manager continued in another, the license was picked up by another company who made another version of Championship Manager, which was different. And I tried that and I wasn't, very, I wasn't completely convinced. And the Football Manager uh, continuation kept the old kind of formula. So I stuck with that. This is a game that's followed me around my life since I was a teenager. Yeah, I just it's just super addictive and it's just it's a massive glorified spreadsheet really <laughs> of events happening and you're just twiddling numbers and hoping for the best. I've I've lost a lot of hours to this game. All I can remember with Championship Manager or Football Manager, it's more about the moments in my life where I was living in a certain place. Like I did a lot when I was a student, I moved around the UK a lot. And, and when I got my first few jobs in the UK, I moved around. And uh, I just remember the places that I sat huddled at two o'clock in the morning with a with a, a glowing monitor addicted to this game. And I, I remember lots of games. I, I played a lot of multiplayer versions of the game with friends over the years that I lived with because I had lots of different housemates. Um, and I remember just classic sets of games where me and a, a housemate would play for weeks and go through like three seasons of football. We both had a team each. And I remember a, a housemate and we had we were running a Scottish league that went on for months and he wasn't even into football he didn't even like football and i got him, i got him addicted to it i think i think i was managing montrose and i got them into the the scottish premiership and into the european you know you have these weird little stories these little narratives that you create that will live with me for a long time so the warlock of firetop mountain obviously the first and probably the most famous of the ian livingston steve jackson fighting fantasy books but this was one which rather than just doing it as a as a game book on the phone uh, you guys actually did a, a crowdfund and produced a, a 3d pc game for that um how did how did that come about so we've been creating these game book apps we're using the license for a few years but we just felt that we were we were missing out on some potential to sort of grow the audience um because a lot of modern gamers weren't even alive when fighting fantasy books were originally out in the 80s. And so you'd get people that, that would come to it and go, I don't understand what this is. <laughs> so we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll take the game book format and we'll actually put on a, a visual over the top, which a more modern gamer would kind of understand. Um, and we started looking into that. And then as we started developing ideas and working through it, it became really obvious that we could turn the game book itself into a kind of board game with, you know, miniatures bouncing around an environment. So it's kind of like it becomes, because basically fighting fantasy books are solo Dungeons and Dragons adventures, really, where the, the actual dungeon master, the games master is Ian Livingston or Steve Jackson or whoever the writer is, you know, narrating the story to you. So we felt that what we could do is we could try and bring in a lot of people that are familiar with that kind of tabletop role-playing game experience by presenting the game book with those kind of visuals. But obviously doing that increases the cost exponentially. It goes sky high. And the technology we had to develop to do all that, you know, took a long time and, and, and cost money. So we ran a Kickstarter just to, as two ways really, first to, to help market the game to let a few people know that it, it was going to exist um, but also just to help us out with some of the art costs because the art costs obviously rose significantly so yeah and that's how it kind of uh, got going really and we raised some money and uh, yeah we, we we got it made which was brilliant i'm actually i actually slightly gutted i missed out on the kickstarter because obviously you have the the backers names in this kind of tome 
you know this book in one of the rooms you can you could open the book yeah and we have a running joke on lay radio that um when it comes to sort of games crowdfunders one of our <laughs> one of our co-hosts a guy called grant walcott who goes by the name of psycho cow he seems to have he seems to back like every every kickstarter you come across in terms of pc games he seems to have backed it and i said it, it was no surprise to me at all when i was going through that book and I found his name in it. <laughs> Do you know, I actually recognise his name, actually, from the backer list, because I go through that quite a lot. Um, so with The Wall of Quattro Mountain, I mean, did that work so well as a kind of 3D game? Because the, the book itself is, like everyone who's read the original book, somewhere along the line, they have created on like an A4 piece of paper, a map that they have been drawing while they've been reading it. So is, does the fixed map of Warlock of Firetop Mountain make that sort of thing like easier? Do, like, do you think there's other game books that it would work for? Or do you think Warlock of Firetop Mountain is sort of quite unique in that sense? Warlocks are very much a dungeon crawl. And so dungeon crawls lend themselves very well to easy mapping. You know, it's a room and a corridor and another room and a corridor and a cavern and whatever. Um, as some of the other fight fantasy game books are set, you know, outdoors um, uh, and, and various other locations. So they would be a little bit tougher. But I think, you know, ultimately with the, with the right application, you could, you could, turn your hand to anything really to, to, to set this up so you know you just have to replace the the rocky corridors with something else uh, in fact we're working on a, a game at the moment which i can't talk about sadly but um a lot a lot a lot of the it, it's in a similar vein a lot of the environments in that are sort of outdoorsy environments and if you've ever played like warhammer fantasy battle or something um a lot of those take place in outdoor environments with props and things on a tabletop so it's just sort of getting that aesthetic right because the aesthetic is really important to make people feel like they're building themselves together like you would do if you were building this thing on your tabletop so your second choice is another sports title Uh, you have chosen tennis champs returns So this is a bit of a shout out to a mate of mine and I'm including it on the list and not just because he's a mate of mine, just because, oh my gosh, he's, I, you know, I obviously do a lot of commuting back and forth to the city um, to work. And uh, yeah, I've put a lot of hours into this game over the last year or so. It's a company called Uprising Games. Um, it's a little iOS tennis game that's kind of pixelated. Yeah, there's it's a guy called Elton Bird. He's the programmer. Yeah, if anybody's listening, you should just play it. It's brilliant. It's so addictive. It's one of those games where you actually feel like you're getting better at it and you get really good at it. You unconsciously play it, which means you can start... I've played whole sets of tennis and I couldn't tell you... I couldn't remember playing them because I'm I'm kind of in an autopilot, I'm just sort of like doing what I need to do to try and win the match. And not many games do that, I don't think. Like It's really hard to get so immersed especially into sort of action titles. So it sounds like it, it's actually got two of the like majorly important aspects of game design, really. So you're talking about how you can play it for ages and you're in the zone and yet you f- time passes quickly. Uh, you know, it's got f- what they call flow, which is always, yeah. which I, I, it's like, like the Tetris effect. People would probably understand it better as it's, you know, you can just play it, play it, play it. And mm. before you know it, you can, you, you know, it's an hour and it's time to get off the toilet or something like that. Um, yeah, in my case, the train, but yeah. The train, or yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's, so I know someone who plays Tetris in the toilet. Um, um, but also, the first thing that you mentioned, the thing that you, you, you do get this feeling that you're getting better, that's something that's usually quite hard to convey to players in games when you're making games. So I think he's probably achieved quite a lot with a simple tennis game. Mm. This guy's very talented. He likes making games that are really hard. But yeah, he just nailed it. He, he recently did an update um, where he changed some of the controls. And, I, and I, I, I kept missing shots that I would normally be able to get. And I sent him a message on Twitter and I said, mate, you've changed it too much. I don't like it anymore. It's not like it used to be. And he said, just stick with it, please. He said, I've actually made the controls better. Like you actually now have more control. But he said, you just need to just to refine your the, the point of hitting the ball better. And he was right. Like within a couple of hours of playing, I suddenly got got it. And all of a sudden, it felt like the game had opened up another 50% to me. It was just, I had so much more control. And 
Yeah, it's funny. He's a he's a clever chap. Yeah, I was going to say I've managed to find uh, Tennis Champs Returns on the the Google Play Store, so it is on Android as well. Uh, and it does say remade completely by the original Amiga version programmer. So this is an old an old Amiga classic. Oh. oh. I was looking through some of your things, and I came across something that I'd not come across before, um, which is a game book you have produced called Choices. Well, I, I yeah. should say a series of game books called Choices. You know, we've been doing all these goblin, sword and sorcery, science fiction game books for years. You know, we love doing that. But I just wanted I wanted to do something a bit different. And um, I was sat on the train one day, probably playing Tennis Champs, <laughs> and, um, and I just suddenly had this uh, moment. I thought, well, choose your own adventure stories are great, but they're finite. And what could what would happen if you could play one that just didn't end and it just kept going? And Wild Choices does have stories that do end. The original idea for it was that they wouldn't. And Apple at the time were looking into doing subscription gaming. I thought, well, it could be like a magazine, like a, an ongoing story that you just keep subscribing to every week. And our game book writing tools uh, in-house, we we use a tool called Mercury Mouse, we can upload to the cloud, which means that we can update our game books on the fly, which means every week we could push out a new chapter of of story. And that's kind of how it started, really. And our first adventure was called And the Sun Went Out, which is about uh, what happens to the Earth when suddenly the sun disappears for a few hours and the impacts on that on what happens to the planet and we started writing this adventure story with that in mind yeah it just kind of took off and it ran for on subscription for about a year uh we did end it eventually it ended up being six hundred thousand words which is huge it's like the biggest thing we've ever written uh we ended up at one point there was four different writers on it but in the end it was two core writers that were that were writing the majority of the stuff and yeah, it's been it's been great. It's free to play. And then since then, we've added a second story, which is subsequently finished as called And Their Souls Were Eaten, which is like a steampunk adventure. And we've just started a new one called And Their Heroes Were Lost, which is our third story, which is running at the moment. Um, and we've got plans to do more as well. So it's uh, it's a slightly different outlet. It's completely choose your adventure. So it's it's just story. There's no dice rolling or or combat or anything. It's um, they're huge. I mean, I, if you saw the story trees of these, they're, they're, I've never seen anything like it. They're, they're crazy. This is why we have to have multiple writers, okay? Because we have all these different story arcs that feed down. And in the, in the case of uh, And the Sun Went Out, the character found themselves in different parts of the world. And you can have a playthrough of Choices and the Sun Went Out where you go to completely different parts of the world and meet completely different people and do completely different things than somebody sat next to you who's playing it. Like, it's it's really epic and huge. Yeah, it's something we're super, super proud of. So does it not have choke points? Like, so something like the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, quite, quite fa- well, I say quite famously, for, for those who kind of know uh, or have read the, the really interesting kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that you put in the PC version of the game, um, the mm. bit in Warlock of Firetop Mountain where you cross the river... Is kind of a choke point. Is kind of a choke point. (laughs) So regardless of what direction you go in in the first half of the book, you will always be led back to that one choke point before it then branches out again. So that was their way of kind of keeping the game, you know, keeping the original book under control. So does things like and the sun went out? Do you not use those choke points in there? Is there no point where it converges? Does it always just sprawl, or does it come back to common points? The, the trick with this stuff is, uh, like with that, with any interactive fiction, you need choke points um, or bottlenecks, as I call them. Uh, the, the thing with Choice and the Summon Out, though, is we sprawled so much and had multiple writers on it that there are bottlenecks within bottlenecks within bottlenecks. It's, it's, it's actually quite huge. I mean, there are key moments. We have a thing called a filtering system, which basically kind of hard to explain but we can change the text that's viewed on the screen depending on the things that you've done or the items you've picked up or the way you've interacted with something so for example let's say you walk into a bar and there's a guy sat at the bar in one of the story strands you might have met that guy at a bus station if you've met that guy at a bus station the program knows that you've met this guy and so the text on that page will basically be delivered and written in a, such a way where you recognize you walk into the bar and you see a guy sat there that you recognize 
do you go up to him or do you order a drink? If you've never met that guy at the bus station, it would just be you go into the bar, there's a guy sat there having a drink. The filtering system allows our, even when we do have a bottleneck or a choke point, the filtering system is such that you could have done absolutely anything up to that point where you got to that choke point, and the text at that choke point will be specific to what you have done. So it will be different for every player. And sometimes that could involve just simple word changes, and other times it can involve whole choice changes that so will change the story in completely different ways it gets it can get super complex yeah. I, I do sometimes think that there is a there is a difficulty in difficulty in games uh we've talked about this a lot in regards to elite dangerous because there's this thing about how st- stuff that's presented to you is different based on certain things that are happening but if you if you hide too much of that away behind the scenes well, you end up in a situation where the player doesn't realize <laughs> that they're being given something that's kind of tailored to their own choices. And that's one of the things I think is really, mm. really interesting about what you've done with with choices and with, with the other game books I've seen is the way that it does make it clear that you're that something is related to something that you chose to do earlier, like enough to make those choices feel valid, but without yeah. it being too much like, oh, yeah, well, this is option B. You could have chosen option A. One of the most important things, I think, in good interactive fiction writing is making sure that people know that the choices they make matter. Uh, so that's super, super important. I have to say, I've I've really enjoyed what I've seen so far of choices, um, and I'm definitely looking forward to getting into it more. I particularly like the aesthetic you've gone for with it, because in comparison to something like, like you say, like the fantasy things, which tend to be, you know, the, the style of the app, it tends to be like, parchment paper with ink on it and there's that sense of a book whereas choices is very it's very stark and it's very modern and it reminds me of those kind of silent movie like dialogue cards that used to come up yeah yeah that was the whole idea yeah ultimately we wanted we knew this game was all about reading it was about story that we didn't you know there was very little visuals in it the story had to be king so we wanted a way to deliver that story. And we thought, what better way to deliver a story than, than in the format of a Twitter feed? Because uh, as, you've been play, as you play it, you'll notice you tap the screen and the next piece of text appears. But it's usually just a sentence um, before it goes on to the next. And most people consume stories these days via their social media. And they're just scrolling up and down. And so we wanted the same sort of experience. And then as we were doing that, we wanted it easy to read. So on a black background with white text and... And so we kind of went with this kind of retro futurist vibe, and I think it kind of lends itself and works quite well for it. So moving on, your your third choice uh, is Europa Universalis. But fate turns upon the wheels of chance. We trusted in our brothers, and they embraced us with steel. Our hearts are charred by betrayal. Shattered trust fuels the fires of vengeance. Strike now, ascend your mounts, and seize the reins of history. I I love crazy medieval political stuff. (laughs) And this is a game which, um, I mean, I've always kind of loved, you know, playing like the Total War games and all those kind of games, but I'm I'm not much good as a battle tactician. I've never been really good at war games. Uh, while I've quite liked the setup of the where those games take place and the period of history, um, I've not been great at them. Whereas Europa Universalis, you, it's just about diplomacy with other countries. It's the weirdest game ever, and it just sucks me in. Like whenever I put it on, I'm suddenly six hours later, you know, playing this thing, and it's three o'clock in the morning or something. Lots of different uh, choices for you to make in terms of the things that you can do, which have long-lasting ramifications. To, to the way you run your country in later years. Yeah, I'd highly recommend it. It's really it's got a really tough difficulty curve to learn the game though. So you have to you have to invest a significant amount of time to get your head around how the game works. But once you get over that hump and once once it clicks, oh, it's just one of the one of my most favorite gaming experiences ever. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I'm really I'm really happy that it's done so well because it's the sort of game which I think a lot of people would struggle to get into. Um, but obviously it has an audience because they keep adding to it. Um, yes, I can see that there are there are 10 expansions for Europa Universalis 4. That's almost that's almost getting into kind of Sims territory in terms of number of expansions. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's epic. 
I love those multicolored European maps. So that's another game I'm going to have to add to my uh, to playlist, I guess. Uh, is it really heavy on the strategy? So there's no. So you don't like while you do move troops around and stuff. It's not like a game of risk where you're directly attacking. It's kind of hard to describe. It, it, it's more about the relationships you have with other countries more than anything. And starting wars isn't simply a case of moving some armies into another territory. You have to. You have. You can't just start war with another country. You have to set up the war and bring your and build relationships with countries around you to bring allies, get allies ready to help you out. Oh, so it's more. Um, it sounds more like diplomacy then, in a way that because uh, the one thing so, yeah, about I, diplomacy I, is you can do very little on your own. You usually nearly always need help from somebody to kind of kick things off. And, and also, you know, if you just and start a war with another country without provocation, the game won't. You won't last very long because you'll be seen as a as a Belligerent. despot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, other countries will just take you out pretty quickly. So you have to be, you have to play the long game. It's a long game. Like you have to really play the long game and you can choose because you can choose any country at the beginning and you can choose any particular point in history as well. The game has so many different levels to it. Like you can come at it at any point in time and it will be different, completely different to the last time you played. London has foolishly focused on their petty squabbles with Paris for generations. But what thought have they given them? Or steps have they taken to protect themselves from their growing allies in Stockholm? <laughs> Not enough, I say, when storytellers... Um, so I want to talk about another one of your, your game books you produced, because actually one of the things that's interesting about the Wall of Kavata Mountain is the way that you've kind of, um, in a sense, added to the gameplay. Like, it's not just about presenting the book but in kind of adding those turn-based battle sections uh you've obviously kind of enhanced the thing um, but another one that you've kind of done quite a lot to is um starship traveler what's your kind of process for you know when you come to these game books it, it's very clear that you don't just copy and paste the text into your app engine and just throw in the encounters what's your kind of process for looking at the the, the kind of theme of the game and what, what elements need to be kind of highlighted or changed or yeah so it's interesting starship traveler when i originally spoke to ian and ian Livingston and steve jackson about the fight fantasy series and we went through which books we'd like to do one of the things well steve obviously wanted us to do this one and when he said it i remember reading this book as a kid and already my brain was going oh no <laughs> because i knew I knew that there was lots more complexity to it compared to some of the other fight and fantasy books in terms of the way it was the extra rules, like you say, you know, we always knew that it was going to be, it wasn't going to be one of the books that we could do quickly. Like um, say, you know, some of like, like forest of doom or caverns of the snow, which, which follow a similar formula. A lot of the team that worked on starship traveler had never even read the book before. They didn't even know anything about it. And so they came at it really fresh and they saw exactly like you said, they saw it for what it was, for what it needed to be. And they thought, well, if we're going to do this, we might as well do it with a little bit of panache and add and, and like really lean on the, the subject matter. And so they did a great job. I, I actually wasn't personally involved in the, the core, the beginning design of this. I had a, a couple of guys, Ben Cosmina and Clinton Shepard, who, who basically tore the book apart and rebuilt it with 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 these new sort of elements in there and they did a, a fantastic job and i think the the thing what they did that i think it really a lot of people like is the fact that it gives you ownership on creating your crew you choose i mean there was a bit of that in the book originally but we go one step further by naming the the crew members and giving the whole thing a personality so you know you can make your crew you know your family members or your best mates or something and it just adds that little bit of uh bit more of a fun factor to it but yeah i you know it was it was a tough one this one <laughs> to do that's for sure <laughs> yeah well one of the things i like about it is that that actually this is where for me starship traveler was a different book to the other ones and possibly where i found it that much harder obviously with warlock of mm. mountain i've already said about how you everyone would like draw maps on bits of paper and again that was the same for like city of thieves i had a map for that and mm. death trap dungeon i had a map for that starship traveler i never confidently felt found a way of mapping that game 
even though in a sense it is still a maze and it's on rails because of the way you're discovering the different different suns and different planets i never felt confident as a, as a as a child or a teenager the kind of mapping that but the thing i really like about the starship traveler app is the way that as you discover these locations you actually start building up like a star map which you can sort of refer to behind the scenes and i think that's a that's kind of opened my eyes to an element of the the story and the fiction which I which I don't think I ever really understood, which is that the, the ship has been transported to an unknown sector of, of, of the galaxy and they're having to kind of build the star map from scratch. And even though I understood that that was the story, for some reason I never tried to actually create the map. So yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely enjoying that. That's really good to hear actually, because I know that the guys, when they were getting the head around it, you know, getting the head around the map themselves, because it, you know, like you say, it, it doesn't, it not, it's not like a corridor in a dungeon <laughs> with rooms coming off it. You have to, it's a bit more abstract. So, um, yeah, they'll be pleased to hear that because it's, yeah, they work very hard to make sure they got that right. I have to ask, actually, have you done Appointment with Fear as, a, as an app? Yeah, we have. Yeah, that's oh, been done as well. I might, yeah, I might have to look at that because that was one of my favourites. Really, just because I liked the fact that at the beginning of it, like you say, the personalisation, I liked the fact that you could choose which superhero power you had we've added to that quite significantly as well in our version there's actually a a superhero auto name generator now which is a bit (laughs) wacky and which i think you'll probably quite like for people like me who haven't played game books if you were to recommend you know a physical game book to kind of get you into it gently uh, what would you recommend neil it depends i'd have to ask how old you were first would be the first question uh 37 uh, yeah, well, I would recommend go right back to the beginning of Final Fantasy and just, you know, the, like Warlock of Firetop Mountain or Forest of Doom or City of Thieves or one of those early ones. Uh, you, when, you, when you're playing and reading it, you've got to read it with your 10-year-old head on, though. You know, it's the, the 80s and you're reading it. Because obviously back then they were kind of cutting-edge revolutionary pieces of literature. But, you know, we've had 30 years of video game development since then. So they can seem... I guess a little bit old-fashioned to some younger readers. I mean, if they're, if they're really young, if they haven't had much access to video games, then I would, again, recommend the same thing. Go with Warlock of Fight Up Mountain. You know, it still resonates now. They've just um, republished, Scholastic have just republished a few of them, and they've added on some groovy new covers and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I would go with Warlock, because it captures the imagination. I mean, you know, walking into a dungeon and meeting different monsters is... It's pretty fun if you're like eight or nine, you know, it's going to be it's pretty good, especially as you can kind of choose your way through the story. You know, you're not just reading a, a school textbook. You're, you know, you're you're actually controlling the story. So. And so coming on to your, your next choice, uh, another football game uh, for you. You've chosen Pro Evo Soccer. Good old Pro Evo. Yeah, I mean, even as a non, you know, not really much of a football fan and not really much of a, a kind of sports games fan, I know of Pro Evo Soccer and I, I kind of, uh, I know that it's the one that, that the kind of gaming mates I have who are really into their football, that always seems to be the one that they refer to as being the most authentic football experience. Is, is that how it is for you? Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, it, in, it, you could have swapped Pro Evo Soccer for a whole bunch of different football games over the years it's the current one that i play like i like if i'm going to play a quick game or something i'll want to play a football game and so uh at the minute i play pro evo but four years ago i'd have probably said fifa 20 years ago i'd have said sensible soccer 30 years ago i'd have said emlyn hughes's international soccer on the spectrum wow (laughs) it's it's, um you know it's whatever the game of the moment is the best one you know the the one that i think is the best one is i'll I'll always have a football game on the current console that i have just because i i get such a thrill playing those games it's pro evo at the minute but insert any football game really (laughs) that's the current thing I had a similar conversation with a colleague of mine in work who who plays FIFA, and I wanted to know about the kind of evolution of the football game. They're not that cynical, surely, that they just every time there's a new football season with new players, they just bring out new skins on them and sell you a new game. I take it there's there's more features coming out. So the biggest revolution for me was actually when they went properly 3D, which again seems like a weird thing to say because... 
you think, well, all football games are 3D. But so when the PlayStation 1 came out, I think it was FIFA 96, maybe. It might be 94. I can't remember. It was the first football game on the PlayStation system, which obviously was the, one of the first 3D consoles. Yet they still had sprites. So you're in a sort of faux 3D football stadium, but they had these kind of animated sprites that were kind of made to look 3D running around, which kind of gave you that impression that it was kind of 3D, but it wasn't. And then I think a version a few years after that, they actually had proper 3D players. And that was the moment where you could suddenly start to see what the future was going to look like for football games. You take Again, you take it for granted now. But yeah, that was, I remember being at university playing those games. You know, when they made that switch to 3D, it, was, it blew me away quite a lot. You know, you'll see the animation of these 3D models and, you know, they're, they're nutmegging the other player or something like that. And it, it looks absolutely amazing. I, you know, I, I just wondered, is that a bad thing? You know, do these, I don't know, they're like set piece animations or something like that. Do they kind of take away from the gameplay or have they done it in a way that, you know, really benefits the player? I think there was a stage um, a few years ago where they started to introduce a lot more kind of animated stuff, but even more so, more so than usual. And it sometimes felt a little bit like that, but these days the design of these games is immense like it's so fluid you pull off certain moves and do certain things and the animation the, the feedback from the player through their controller through to the thing happening on screen is seamless and that it's so good now that you actually feel like you're Ronaldo pulling off a trick you know it's really it's one of those things where you don't realize how good it is and you load up a game from like six or seven years ago a football game and you play that and you go, whoa, and you thought that was the pinnacle right there. And actually, it feels like you're, you're, you're running around in treacle. Shinji Kagawa! Da ist drin! Das ist ein echter Leckerbissen für alle Fußballfreunde! I suppose a lot of Australians would agree with me by, when I say that I really wish somebody would create a, a rugby game that has the same amount of love and effort put into it as you know soccer games well i think uh, there is a studio here in melbourne actually i think big ants they do a rugby game and i must admit i've never played it but it it, um it sells quite well apparently enough that they keep doing new ones so i think that they must be doing something right but again i think with all these things it comes down to audience doesn't it like the foot the audience for football around the world soccer is just massive so the amount of money that a company will invest or a publisher will invest into making those games is going to be huge. And so you're going to get like, it's going to be the best of the best because they just know that they're going to sell millions of copies when they release it. Um, whereas some other sports which have, they might still have big followings, but have lesser followings. You know, again, it, it comes down to it comes down to that sort of level of investment. But but I don't know. I've not played any of the rugby games, and I'm sure there's a company called Big Ant that here in Melbourne, um, and they're a really great company. I know the guy that runs it, and yeah, he's a great guy. So, so you've got going back to uh, Warlock of Firetop Mountain. This uh, this interview's turned out to be quite timely because you guys have just released. It's, it's sort of not the first the first DLC, but it's the sort of big add-on paid DLC for the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, um, Goblin Scourge. So what's been the sort of development process of that? Because obviously the base Warlock of Firetop Mountain game that you produced is a is a really loving and faithful kind of crawl through every possible corner of that book. And you even kind of went in and um, sort of added like a few things that even from even someone like me that, that knows the book really well, there were things in there that was like, oh, that's, you know, that's just slightly different, like enough to throw someone who, like first time I did it on my, my Twitch stream, um, I actually had the paper map still folded in my copy of the book. So I had the map out in front of me and I was using it to play the game. And there were some things in there that kind of wrong footed me. And what you did with the Walker Fata Mountain was create a roster of characters who each had their own mini quests within the mountain. But it was still essentially, at its core, the same book that you were travelling through. But from what I've seen so far of the Goblin Scourge DLC, there is a, a, a whole range of new content and new locations added to... Uh, you know, added to the environment. So how's that, how's that worked? How's that worked in terms of liaising with 
with Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson, um, and also in terms of creating that content as opposed to what you did with the original? Yeah, well, that came around because originally in the Kickstarter, we, we had stretch goals where we were going to introduce new heroes. As I told you about earlier on, the filtering system where we can change the, the words on the page, we use that to change the story relative to the hero and their quest um, as you go through the mountains. We were just going to have some, introduce some new miniatures and just have them run through the mountain again. But we felt that in the original game, I think we had, was it 13 heroes? You know, while all their, their quests are different and your journey through the mountain is very different in each of those quests, doing different things and having different things to do, we just felt it wouldn't have been enough just to release the three heroes with the quest through the mountain in the, the old way. So I had one of my, I had our 3D artist, um, Ed Blanche. I said, look, just build me some new caverns and tunnels and stuff. Build me a new map. And then we'll see if we can build up a story around it. Let's try it this way around. And so he did that. He created these kind of uh, this cool layout. And he said, "Oh look," I said, "I think it's going to be some kind of goblin village." And I was like, "Cool." And and from that point on, it started generating ideas, and we started brainstorming some story ideas, and it just kind of grew from there, really. And we made those three heroes starting points in the mountain, a very different part of the mountain than than the other ones and then we thought well we'll add in an extra kind of sub story in here as well because you know who are these goblins why are they here and so we created Scarclaw, who's the guy that runs the goblins and he's a bit embittered because the orcs they always get kind of priority treatment from zagor and you know so he's kind of got his own ideas of how to kind of get one up on the orcs you know there's this kind of political culture of the monsters in the mountain how they interact with each other and so we told Ian and Steve that we were going to do that, and they they were they've worked with us long enough that they just kind of said, "Sure, go for it." There was a couple of moments late on in the development process where I told them some of the things that they'd done, and they were like, "Oh, we, we, maybe you should have cleared that with us a little bit more than you have because you've changed some." And I was like, "It's look seriously, we we've done this with the the love and attention that we would with a fighting fantasy book. So you know, we haven't done things. We've done things within law, like it's not." We're not going to go completely crazy with with, with the world law. So uh, in the end, they were happy with that. So You've also got the ability within the DLC to play the game through as some of the monsters. Yes, that was quite a late, a late edition, actually. Is it the sort of classic journey through the original book, but as one of the, the kind of monster NPCs? Basically, what we did is we we felt that it'd be really great to play some of the monsters going through the story and have give them monsters in the combats, their own attack patterns and different ways of, of doing stuff. One of the original plans was to write the narrative, like change the stories to have the monsters have their own story going through the mountain. But, you know, that would have been a lot, a lot of work, especially as, as the stories, a lot of the narratives in the story, the base narratives are written from the sense of point of view that you're a hero so having a monster go through, especially a monster that maybe doesn't, you know, like a giant rat, you know, their perspective <laughs> on the mountain isn't going to be that interesting. So we thought, we'll just, what we'll do is we'll just keep it purely combat related and we'll create a, like a vanilla version of the mountain that the monsters can go through. There's a lot less choices. It's not about the story this time. It's really about, it's about how far can you get with a monster? So it's called the Goblin Gauntlet. It's like a little, you know, you could almost do a speed run with it. It's, just, it's a shame that I like the idea of the giant rat narrative. The, the text just kind of says, cheese this way? No, no cheese this way. <laughs> cheese this way? No, no cheese this way. That's sort of what I was imagining it might be. Well, well you jest, but we, we did actually start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then change tack pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, I, it's funny for me because I, I really like the Wall of Fire Mountain and... Uh, I, I kind of have this quandary where, because I've got you here, there are so many questions that I want to ask you about stuff in it, but at the same time I don't, because I don't <laughs> want to. The, the, the one question I will I will ask, because I just I have to know. There's one character, the guy who's training to go into Death Trap Dungeon, and he kind of gives you this running commentary about how many creatures he's killed. And yeah. at the and at the end of the game, he kind of says, "Oh, I'm not sure I killed enough creatures." Is it possible? Just tell me, is it possible to kill enough creatures? where he says at the end, yeah, I did well. Yeah, there is. 
That's all I wanted to know, because that, that means for me, there must be a way of going through the mountain with maximum kills. And now I am determined to find it. I don't think you need maximum. I think you just, as a certain, there's a certain number that we, that we, basically we had a, one of our play testers. I remember that day we had one of our play testers and I told him to play through trying to get as many as he could, but not worrying too much. Uh, and then he did a few play runs that way and um, ended up giving us a, an average number, which was kind of like a really good number for somebody who's quite skilled at the game to get. Yeah, yeah, because so. yeah, I, I did a run through with him and I just, I murdered like everybody that I possibly could. I got into all the fights I could. I killed people that I, you know, probably shouldn't be like, you know, like the, 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 the sort of wild old man in the cell. No, he's gone because I need the kill and all this sort of thing. <laughs> and I, I got to the end of the game thinking that I, that I really had just killed everybody that I could find. And it still wasn't quite enough. I was thinking, well, maybe if I take a different route, there's like, there's more monsters if I go like a different way. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to figuring that out. So moving on to your your last choice. Now it's slightly contentious because at Lave Radio, um, we are uh, we are obviously an Elite Dangerous podcast, and one of the concepts we had for this show was that we would be getting various people on, and and because of our connections, we sort of thought we we would probably be getting a lot of fans of Elite Dangerous in. So we kind of said when we designed the show, you know, don't don't pick Elite because we'll we'll give you Elite as a choice anyway. But you've, you've picked Elite. <laughs> but it's quite interesting for us because you're not somebody... I mean, you, you told us before the show that you were kind of... You, you were a Kickstarter backer and you were around at that time. But obviously you're not someone that we've found through association with the Elite Dangerous you know, community. So what's your, what's your relationship with the game? I mean, I, I saw the Kickstarter and it really excited me. And so I, I backed it and was very excited to get my copy. And um, I put, you know, I put a few hours into it when I first got it. And it was interesting when you were, when you came up with the, the, the five choices I had to come up with, it was more of a case of, I don't have that much time these days to play video games not big video games. Like I said, this is probably why I like football games because I sort of dip into them like for half an hour. If you suddenly put me on an island where I didn't have any other distractions, I would love, I would so love to just play hours and hours of Elite Dangerous because I know I will love it, but I just don't have the time to put into it. So, so that's why I chose it initially for that reason. It's actually not because I've played it lots. It's because I haven't played enough of it and I want to. I had a ZX Spectrum 48K and I had Elite for that. It absolutely blew my mind. At that point in the spectrum, we were playing Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy and things like that. And I had like the Hobbit adventure game, which came me a bit of sort of adventure gaming. But then Elite came along, which is this open world thing where you could just go around all these different star systems and meet different aliens. Well, you didn't actually meet them. You just met them in space battles, but you kind of made up the rest in your head, you know, and you traded all these goods. And it, yeah, just blew my mind. And I, th- I, c- I don't know what summer it was. It was probably like the summer of 1985 or something, uh, the summer holidays at school. I-, I think I just played that game and I actually became elite status. And I was so proud of that fact. I went around a friend. He had a BBC Micro. His parents were teachers and I went around his house one day. And the BBC Micro version of Elite was way more superior than the Spectrum version. And uh, yeah, I remember seeing that and having my mind blown as well, but still loving the Spectrum version because I'd spent so many hours floating around the universe in that game. I mean, the fact that I could turn my mum's living room into a spaceship because the keyboard had the overlay like with all the different buttons that did the different things. You know, for a nine, ten-year-old, that, that's, just, that's just immense. That was so amazing. I so have such fond memories of, of that. Yeah, one of the best gaming experiences I ever had. And I'm so glad they, they brought it back. And I'm so glad it's got such a big following. Um, I think it's, um, you know, it's one of the, the most amazing game series ever created, hands down. You know, you, you, when, you, when you look at games, you look at some games, it's like that game's known for its graphics or it's known for its playability or it's known for it this, that, and the other. You know, Elite really is that. I, I, you can't really put your finger on what it's so great for it's just great for showing the possibilities of 
interactive uh, experiences, really. There's you know, a great just... um, documentary on YouTube about the making of Elite. Um, I think it originally was on the BBC or something about mm. David Braben and Ian Bell. And it was just amazing back then how different the game was to anything else that existed. So much so that nobody wanted to touch it. No publisher wanted to go near it because it, it just broke the mold completely. But but I didn't really play the original Elite. It kind of just passed me by. I think I was just maybe a little bit too young. And I played Frontier instead. But again, that was groundbreaking in, in, in different ways again on the Amiga. Just the scale of it and how, you know, how much more realistic it was in terms of our own galaxy. You know, people talk about sandbox games now, you know, like GTA is a sandbox game and Minecraft is a sandbox game. And people forget that, in effect, I think Elite was one of the, one, the games that created the idea of a sandbox in a game. There you go. We, we, we've, we've, we've come back to we've come back round to Elite Dangerous, even on even on. I'm sorry. Games. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's all, it's all good. We, we we love it when people love Elite. So yeah, thank you very much, uh, Neil, for coming. No worries. Thanks for having me. I don't know where the best place is to kind of like find all of your stuff. I don't know, like the mobile phone store or the Steam store. Just go well, and... we do have a website. If you go to GameBookAdventures.com, that has links to, I would say, about 99% of all our games and all the different stores. You can pretty much find your way to most things from there. I mean, I would say to people, do check out things like An Assassin in All Lands and The Siege of Necromancer, which are obviously the pre-fighting fantasy stuff. I think as like first games, they are still so accomplished in what they do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that, that book, I have a lot, of, a lot of feels about that book. That book came out... Um, just before my daughter was born you know my wife's just taken her to school my daughter's now writing her own choose your own adventure stories you know that (laughs) so that you know simon osborne again shout out to him he's the writer of that book did a great job and there's something about that book the artwork the music we had composed for it the the time that we did it it, i I just hear the music for that app starting up and i get all goosebumps it's it's (laughs) a it holds a special place in my heart i'm very proud of it that's brilliant. And for our listeners as well, do go and check out uh, the Warlock of Firetop Mountain uh, on Steam. I don't know how quickly we're going to get this podcast out, but if you if you do head to twitch.tv forward slash holdmykidney over the next few weeks, I am bound to be streaming it because uh, I have the new DLC and I'm loving what I see so far. So our competition this time is if you could choose any video game that you have played and loved and turn it into a page-turning choose-your-own-adventure with or without dice rolls, what would that be and what would you call it? Uh, If you want to get in touch with the show, uh, we are at Lave Radio on Twitter. You can email us at info at laveradio.com. You can talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lave Radio. Hopefully you will find us on one of those channels and we do look forward to hearing your entries to that competition. Uh, so thank you very much, Neil, for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. And and thank you again, as always, John. It's a, It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to do a podcast with you. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We will see you all again soon. Remote Outpost Games is a live radio podcast with sound production and editing by RadiotheatreWorkshop.com. Your hosts were Christopher Jarvis and John Stabler, and the music was by purpleplanet.com. Hold my kidney.